chapter 41, um, we spoke about the need for awe, the basis of our motivation for serving Hashem should be awe, which we also call respect. In chapter 42, we spoke a little bit more about awe and about the internal Meshurabeno, the focus, the das, the meditation that brings about that self-awareness sufficient to keep our own behaviors in check. Chapter 43, we spoke about two levels of love, two levels of awe. Chapter 44, we spoke about further types of love. 45, we spoke about a way of using compassion to release love. 46, we introduced the reciprocal principle of love, the water mirroring the face. Thinking about the Exodus, 47 is same principle, but thinking about how the Exodus happens today for each of us. 48 was to speak about to speak about tzimtzum as a way of arousing reciprocal love. 49 was the reciprocal love that we feel toward Hashem, making making space within himself for us, and we will lovingly inconvenience ourselves for him. Okay. So now we're in chapter 50, and this is the last chapter of these uh, love and awe chapters. Remember way back in chapter 16 and 17, we said, if you want to create feelings, you got to think. And we didn't really tell you specifically what kinds of things to think about. Well, now we have. Now we have spoken about all types of things to think about. But we're going to do one more now. And this last emotion or <coughs> method of revealing emotion is um, an exception. It's a little different than all the previous ones. Until now, we have been speaking about love and awe and they consistently, love and awe consistently distinguish themselves from each other in certain ways. Kabbalistically, we refer to them as right and left. The right axis and the left axis. Love belongs to the right axis and awe belongs to the left axis. What is the right, what is the left? You know the, the expression to Yemin Mekarevis, the small daicha, right? Being, bring close with the right hand and push away with the left, yeah. So right is kindness, generosity, love, 
left is restraint, boundaries, withholding. And if we had to uh, plot right, uh, uh, love and awe on either of these two axes, it's pretty obvious that, that love is on the right side, right? That it's giving and it's generous and it's kind and magnanimous and expansive. And awe is on the left side. restraint and boundaries and withholding. And and there's always an exception that proves the rule. So chapter 50 is the exception that proves the rule. Chapter 50 is a funny love. <clears throat> because it's a love that falls on the left axis. uncharacteristically. <coughs> Another difference between uh, the right and the left, between love and awe, is we characterize them as Kaihain and Levi. Yeah. Kaihain is the right side. Kaihain ish chesed. Kaihain is a representative of or embodiment of chesed and a levi is an embodiment of gvura how do we see that a levi is an embodiment of gvura the fact that they were singing Yep. Gvura doesn't necessarily look the way that you picture it. Really, the most helpful, for me, the most helpful way of thinking about chesed and gvura in these terms is up and down. Or down and up. Um, chesed, a person who is feeling chesed wants to take godliness from up there and bring it down here. He wants to uh, irrigate a parched land. He wants to bring in, he wants to import godliness from elsewhere, from on high, and bring it down. Which is why, for instance, Avraham, who was an embodiment of Chesed, was his big thing was getting people to make brachas, to bring the godliness down into the world. Bracha means to draw down, to pull something down. Gvura is the opposite. Gvura is an upward thrust. It's a it's a pining or a longing. Gvura wants to to leave. Buddha wants to get out of here. So the fact that the Levium were singers is sort of a, a characteristic of their Gvura. 
the fact that they are um, yearning for something elsewhere. The act of singing itself is an act of, of, of yearning, upward striving. Another helpful metaphor or symbol is water and fire. Water flows downward. That's the nature of water. I mean, everything falls because of gravity, but water or uh, fluids are particularly downward in their uh, in their movement because you can't even stack them. You can't make a pile of water. You know, if if you if you have. Uh, if you, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you have enough dexterity, you could make a pile of oranges, because they're solid. You balance them right, you pile them up. But you can't make a pile of water. Fluids always go down and spread out. So if you just sort of imagine the motion of water as your... Uh, visualization of chesed, that's helpful. And then, conversely, if you imagine fire, you know, how old were you when you realized how to hold a match? And if you hold the match with the flame on the bottom, right, you hold, you dangle it down, and you hold your fingers up here, and what happens? The flame licks your fingers. You learn, you know, after a couple times. Some people learn after one time that it's not the way to hold a match. You got to hold the match like this. You got to hold it with the flame above your fingers, and then it'll never burn you. I mean, until the match runs out. But that's easier to avoid. Flame always goes up. Flame is climbing. So we have the right side, which is the kohen, which is water and flows downward. It wants to bring godliness into this world. Then we have the left side, which is the levi, and which is fire, and which strives upward and wants to escape the world to become closer to godliness. Let me add another component to the symbolism. In metal, precious metals, we have silver and we have gold. The word, the word for silver, kasef, is related to the term kisof, which means yearning, like that's what Lovin told Yankiv when he ran away. Told him you wanted to go home. You were yearning for your home. So love and kasef, kisof, are uh, are related terms. Then you have gold, 
which is like Kasif. Zohov, gold, is like Kasif, like silver, but it's got fire in it. It's like fiery silver. Visually, I'm assuming. I don't know about any other properties of gold other than what it looks like, because that's pretty much all I've ever done with it. I don't know what it feels like, what it tastes like, but I know what it looks like. And I'm assuming this is referring to the fact that gold has that warm color that reddish hue. So gold is like silver with fire. And we're going to talk about a form of love which is called a love like gold. And like gold has superior value over silver, this love also has superior value over the other forms of love we've learned about so far. This is a very special type of love. And like we said before, it is uncharacteristic of love in general. Okay. This is a love which comes from the left side. Now right there, that should strike you as a paradox. A love that comes from the left side. It is a fiery love, a passionate love. I know that we think about fiery love, we don't really think about that as being paradoxical. But in terms of the right and left axes and the downward-upward movements, it really is a paradox. Because love generally means, if I'm standing here loving Hashem, that means I want to bring Hashem into my life and into everybody's life. Bring godliness into the world. That's love. And Vura is that I want to just disappear. I don't want to be here. I'm not going to bring godliness into the world. I'm not going to be in the world. I just want to make myself small until I'm gone. So what does it mean? A love that is Vura, that is self-restraint, that is upward it means that I love Hashem so much that I just want to join him we call this Klois Hanefesh expiration of the soul I don't want to be individuated anymore I don't want to be separate I don't want to be down here in a body with my spiritual senses dulled. I want to leave it behind. I want to go up there and I want to become one with him. So it's a love, but it expresses itself differently than most loves. Instead of me wanting to bring godliness into the world for myself and for everyone around me, you know, instead of saying, 
I'm so in love with Hashem, I want everyone to know it, and I want everyone to know Him. I want them all to know that I love Him, and I want them to all know about Him, which is typical love. This is, I don't want to tell anyone about it, I don't want to talk to anyone, I don't even want to be here, I want to just go up there, and that's it, I don't want to even be me anymore. Yeah? You want to commit suicide? What? To commit suicide? Who's talking about suicide? What are you talking about suicide? I mean, how how literally do we take this kind of love? Completely literally. I want to become one with the everything. And how does one do that without dying oneself? Oh no, that's not dying. That's living. Mm -hmm. That's truly living. I'm I'm going to leave behind the physical shell. This false sense of self, the ego attachment to the body, and I'm going to allow my eternal consciousness to become bound up with the everything. So are you not literally leaving? You're not literally leaving your body? Oh, I'm leaving my body, yeah. (laughs) I don't care about my body But if you're in this world, you have to have a body. Yeah, I don't want to be in this world. I want to be up there with him. Okay, so it's the rats on talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rabbi, is this like the men who went into the fire, the sons of whoever? Sons of Aharon? Yeah. 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 They had Kloysa Nefesh. Is that what they did? Yeah. They had Kloysa Nefesh, right. Especially if you read the commentary of the Oirachayim on Parshas Shmini, which describes what they did. He describes their incredible passion and, and longing and desire. Yes, but this is a literal understanding of this uh, emotion, which is very, uh, it, it's bizarre. It's, What's bizarre about it? It's beautiful. What's bizarre? Because number one, you're eliminating your body from performing this vote. If you don't care about your body, don't care you, about my body. It's just. Then how will you perform the mitzvot? I don't Hashem care about the mitzvot right now. I just want to be one with him. But Hashem wants us to care about. I I can't think about that. I'm in love. Isn't that a selfish love? It's not Hashem. You said. No, it's not selfish. Us. I want to get rid of myself. I just want it to be all him. Here to build a dwelling place for Hashem. That's what Hashem Well, in place for Hashem, I can't think about that right now. Then you don't care what Hashem wants, you care what you want. I, I don't know. You're assuming that it's all thought out so clearly. You're thinking very clearly, but I'm really just in love right now, and all I know is I want to be close to Him. It sounds like that love about the awe, that the awe is not there. You're not respecting Hashem's. I think it's just a concept. What? No, it's not just a concept. We're not actually doing that. We're not actually doing it? We're not actually doing it because... No, you know why we're not actually doing it? Because unfortunately, we still love the little trinkets of this world. And so, we can't get ourselves worked up enough to do it. Yeah. I love how upset everyone's getting. This is, this is the most riled up this room has been. But when a Nazir, when a Nazir finishes being a Nazir, he 
has to bring a, a sacrifice, right. atonement. Yes. Right. So, obviously, if he's doing something that is above and beyond and really not what the so, yeah. I learned uh, this last week that the only thing on, in this world that cannot be measured is Ratzon, will. And so, if you have this will that overtakes you, mm -hmm. that's what you're talking about. Yes, he's overtaken by a will. That's right. And, and how does this will come about? This feeling of fiery love. This is great. This is really great. <laughs> Obviously, he was thinking, right? Right. That's right. right. So, he was thinking about the greatness of Hashem. How Hashem is so infinite that everything else is insignificant in comparison to him. Right? Once you think about that, everything else is insignificant. So what do I care about? I don't care about it. I only care about Him. How are you going to bribe me? How are you going to distract me with anything but Him? It's all a diversion. I don't care about it. I don't want it. I just want Him. And you guys are judging it. If you're meditating on this subject and you take it seriously, there's no amount of reasoning that's going to make it wrong. I don't want anything but him, including myself. If myself is something other than him, I just want oneness. That is the fiery love. That is the flames yearning to leave the candle and to, to go upward. This is the, the soul, the divine soul's uh, 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 is, is this something that the divine soul wants to go back? Yes, to? the divine soul wants to go back. Right. And so the divine soul has overcome the, the animal soul completely. Right. The divine soul has overcome the animal soul. The divine soul is saying, nothing's going to stop me anymore. Nothing's going to hold me back anymore. I'm going home. Would this be considered a tzaddik? Hmm? Would, would this no, no. This is not just for a tzaddik. This is one of the loves that anybody can create through meditation. You know that... Uh, those words from the Tehillim, which are which, which are famous because of the Nigun Chabad Nigun Tzamalachonavshi. This is Tzamalachonavshi. My soul thirsts for you. This is thirst. And Yedid Nefesh, song of Yedid Nefesh. That I don't know. Could you read? No, I don't know about it. I don't know if it's correct. It says here, it's It says, he also calls it Chaylas Ahava, which is an expression from Shleim Melech from Shir Hashirim. Chaylas Ahava, lovesick. Lovesick. I'm lovesick. Isn't Shir Hashirim talks about, you know, like when she's not, you know, waiting to knock on the door or whatever? That's also like the same kind of love. 
Right, the, the concept of Chayla Sahava is taken directly from Shir Hashir. And, uh, and we said that this is like the Leviim who are Gvura, they want to go upward, they're pining, they want to be transported to another place, right? Nigunim, right, when you sing, you're trying to take yourself to another place. By the way, he mentions here, parenthetically, that in the future, the world will be characterized by Gvura, and the Leviim will become the Kehanim, which was part of what Kairach's mistake was, that he wanted to rush the timeline, and he, he was a Levi, and he wanted to be a Kohen Gobel. In the future, the Leviim will be the Kehanim. How, how is that possible, since it's a mitzvah that defines a Levi as a Levi, and a Kohen as a Kohen, and mitzvahs will never be changed or replaced? So the Arizal explains that because of Gilgulim, reincarnation, the souls of those who are normally born into Levite families will be born into uh, Kohanic families and vice versa. So somebody who is a fiery soul that wants to leave the body is normally born as a Levi. And the one who is sort of the uh, magnanimous soul that wants to bring spirituality into the world is born as a Kohen, but that'll switch because the Kohen is the superior position and in the world to come, the world of Mashiach, Gvura will finally have uh, predominance over, over Chesed. Right now we can't handle Gvura having predominance because the world's imperfect and part of the uh, nature of Gvura is judgment. In fact, it's called Din. And when the world is imperfect, it can't handle judgment. But when the world is perfected, then there's no harm in judgment. And uh, Gvura will be able to dominate over, over Chazit. At any rate, so you're, we're, we're imagining the, these Leviim who are singing and who are getting themselves worked up in a trance-like state through their, through their singing and their, their pining for, for Hashem, for an out-of-body experience, literally. Starting to set in this feeling, what it is like. Now, here's the problem. Now, I'm going to let you have a problem. Now that you settled down, when you got riled up, I settled you down. When you're settled down, I'm going to rile you up. Somebody told me, I don't know where it comes from, but Chabad disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. <laughs> now let's get disturbed again. What? You're going to leave it all behind? 
But hold on a second. What's the purpose of love? What's the purpose of loving Hashem? Is to do what Hashem wants. All these forms of love that we've learned till now, they all translated into a heightened observance of mitzvahs. And now all of a sudden it's not going to translate into that? Now all of a sudden it's just going to be a transcendent out-of-body experience and it won't translate into action? And like I heard somebody say, what about the dwelling place in the, in the lower worlds? So you were convinced by chapters 35, 36, 37 if you raised that outcry. And you are right. What about the dwelling place in the lower worlds? What about the fact that Hashem put you in a body for a reason? You know about the Catch-22? Right? The Joseph Heller uh, Catch-22? The novel about the guy in, in the army? Catch-22 is a what? What is that? No, no, it's Heller. Yeah, yeah. Um, you think about it, uh, the Vonnegut is a different thing of a guy in World War II. He was by the bombing of Dresden, Slaughterhouse Five. Which was sci fi. But this is, uh, but, but uh, Catch 22 is dark comedy. We're gonna have an American literature class following <laughs> modern American lit, following Tanya. The Catch-22 has become a uh, turn of phrase that everybody knows. It's sort of a way of describing a double bind. But the original Catch-22 from the novel Catch-22 was uh, if you are crazy, I believe that's the term they use in the, I don't know in the book, but in the, in the, in the Mike Nichols film. If you're crazy, they throw you out of the army. Right? You can't be mentally unfit and, and, and serve in the military. So you have to prove that you're crazy. But no normal person wants to be in the army, especially in the time of war. So if you want to be in the army, you must be crazy. So what happens? If you're crazy, it's because being in the army is making you crazy because you don't want to be there. So then you must be normal, so you have to stay in the army. So you can never get out. Because no normal person wants to be there. And abnormal people aren't allowed to be there. But if you don't want to be there, that means you're normal. And if it even makes you crazy by being there, that means you're not crazy and therefore you have to stay there. That was the catch-22 that nobody can get out of. So we have a catch-22. There's a really 
nice book called uh, Once Upon a Chassid, I think it's called, which uh, Yankee Tauber, who's a local here in the Five Towns, he put this book together. Yeah, so Yankee put together a book. I believe these were originally stories that he wrote for Simon Jacobson's Meaningful Life, um, the uh, Thought for the Week. I think these were the Thought for the Week that they put, not, not Thought for the Week, no, 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 Week in Review, sorry. A Week in Review, Thought for the Week is a different thing. A Week in Review. And they used to have Hasidic stories there. And then they compiled them and he made a book. Anyways, I'm just saying this in the name of the one who innovated it because it's just so clever and he deserves credit. There's a famous story, he didn't make up the story, it's a well-known story, but he gave it a great title, he called it Catch 30. What's the story of Catch 30? There was a chassid, known as the Poltaver Rav. You know why they know, they, he was known as the Poltaver Rav? He was a rabbi in a town called Poltav. So he was the Poltaver Rav. I don't know what his name was, but that's what everyone calls him. Anyways, and there's a nigun, by the way, the Poltaver Rav's nigun. I don't sing. Whatever, I'm killing it. But you'll go, not in a good way. You go listen to Nechayach. It's a beautiful, maybe even I'll pull it up. Maybe someone could get it while I'm talking. Someone could get the Poltaver Rav's Nigun. This is a world where internet exists. You could get it in 10 seconds. On Chabad.org. I bet you it's on Chabad.org. Okay. So, this, uh, sorry, this Poltaverov, he was known for sleeping on a bench in the shul because he didn't go home, he didn't want to have creature comforts. Yeah, it's You found it? Okay. You can play it in the background. Go ahead. <laughs> you have enough data? Chabad.org. Okay. Hold on, it talks to me. Hey, turn it up, turn it up. There it is. Okay. This is beautiful. Such a good production staff here. Okay, so you're gonna play you're gonna play the Poltaverov's Negan. I'm gonna tell you his story. Okay? It's the Poltaverov. There's no words to it, it's a wordless Negan. So you can just play it in the background. Can you keep playing, you wanna keep playing? Oh you got there. I wanted to hear you. No, no, no. We're gonna we're gonna do both. Who has it? Me. One one at a time so it doesn't flange, by the way. Okay, turn it up, turn it up. Oh, is that the Vermofried version? Okay, beautiful. Okay, let's just play. Okay. So anyways, Paul Tavarov. He slept on a bench his entire life because he didn't want to have any distraction from this world, from the physical things of this world. So, on the last days of his life, he was lamenting that he had mistreated his body. He was so spiritual that he mistreated his body. He, and he, he, he wondered. He says, you know, if only I had slept on a bed. If only I had slept on a bed these past 30 years. Maybe my body would have been able to make it one more day 
and I would have been able to put on Tefillin one more time. I would have been able to put on Tefillin one more time. And after he passed away, Chassidim were discussing this, and they said, that's the irony, that in order to have your last thoughts in this world be, I wish I could just put on Tefillin one more time, in order to have that thought, you have to sleep on a bench for 30 years. So that's the catch 30. That if you sleep in a bed for 30 years, you don't think necessarily about, oh, my body's giving out too early, I can't put on tefillin one more time. You might think about other things that you wish you could still keep your body around for, but not about the tefillin. But if you sleep on a bench for 30 years, and you totally avoid any type of physical indulgence, then as your body's giving out, you think to yourself, why did I sleep on a bench for 30 years? If I would have slept on a real bed, maybe my body would have lived one more day. I could have put on fill in one more time. That's the catch 30. You turn up the, the song. When did he compose the song? That I don't know. If we want to make it really dramatic, we'd say he composed it on his deathbed, right? <laughs> well, that would be a great story, but I, I doubt it's true. It's probably a song that he... Well, it's probably on a bench, because he really did hang out on that bench all the time, yeah. Yeah, I would assume it happened in a shul somewhere, because he was in shul all the time, yeah. It didn't happen at the pizza shop, I'll put it that way. He did not compose the song at the pizza shop. So, what happens is, you get this love that is a fiery love, a love like gold, that wants to leave this world, leave it all behind, forsaking everything in order to be one with Hashem. And then what happens? You realize, hold on, make a U-turn. What does Hashem want from us? He wants us to do mitzvahs. Back to your body you go. But you're not just going back to where you started from. You're coming back to your body with all of the energy with which you were trying to leave it. You're not just back where you started from. There was this, you know, like with a rocket ship, there has to be this thrust force in order, there to be, in order for there to be liftoff. So you had all this power, the power of the yearning, the pining, the longing, and it was enough force that could have gotten you there. You could have had that Kleisan Efish experience, that expiration of the soul. And now that force doesn't just dissipate. You harness it, you turn it around 180 degrees, and you put it back into the passion with which you live in a body. Not for living, not for the sake of living in a body, but for the sake of using your body to do Hashem's will. This is what it means, by the way. In Pirkei Oves, when it says, uh, Al korchach atrachai, al korchach 
he doesn't say the rest in Tanya, he says v'chulu, etc., but the rest is atomes. Against your will you live, against your will you die. They get you coming and going. Can't win. You can't win. <coughs> against your will you live. You didn't ask to be here. They take your precious soul and they, they put it down here and for the soul that's very traumatic to be ripped from heaven and plunged into embodiment. So it's against your will you live. But then, once your body realizes, I mean, I'm sorry, once your soul realizes that here's where it's at, then, against your will, you die. You say, hold on a second. One more day. One more day. I could put on tefillin one more time. I could put on tefillin one more time. Did I tell you the story? I don't remember if I mentioned to you before when we were doing chapters 35, 36, 37. The story of uh, the Vilna going on his deathbed. He was crying and they asked him why he's crying. Certainly wasn't afraid of, uh, of judgment. It was Isaac Batoida constantly every second. So he, he grabbed his talus cotton. Did I tell you this? He, he grabbed his talus cotton and, and he said, right now, I'm about to leave a place where for a few kopecks you can buy one of these and do the will of God. And I'm going to a place where no fortune can, with, you cannot buy this with any fortune. So that is the love like gold, which surpasses all other loves. and is different, fundamentally different than all the other loves. All the other loves are about bringing Hashem closer to me in my life. Awe is about me making myself small to get out of the way so that my life doesn't disrupt Hashem. And this type of love is I don't want to be here I don't want to be separate I don't want to be a something I just want to be absorbed in the everything and yet the everything wants me down here on this mission so it combines the best of both worlds and that's why we say it's like gold not just it's like gold because silver with a little fire in it, with a little fiery hue, is golden. But also for the reason we mentioned earlier, that gold is more precious than silver. This form of love is more precious than other forms of love. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Can the rabbi go back to when you said... Um what the Vilna said. He said, um, in this world... said, in this world, you can buy a talus cotton for, for a few dollars. Yeah. In the Ilm Haba, you can't buy a talus cotton. Not available. And you can't do Hashem's women, basically. No, it's just you're passive. In the, okay. in the next world, you're passive. You receive reward, but you can't 
can't do mitzvahs anymore. Yeah. It seems to me that this kind of love is like the tzaddik in the pelts. He loves God. He's, he wraps himself up in spirituality, but he doesn't love his fellow Jews. This is only a tzaddik in pelts, which well, let me explain the metaphor to those who don't know it. But the tzaddik, the question was, is this, this sounds like the tzaddik in pelts. I think you're still perseverating on the first half of it. If it would have, let me explain the, the tzaddik and pelts. The, the room is cold. So one guy says, oh, the room is cold. I better put on a fur coat. Okay, he solved his problem. But he didn't solve anyone else's problem. Another person says, oh, the room is cold. And he lights a fire in the fireplace. He solves everybody's problem. If this love were to have stopped at the point where he leaves this world behind, Maybe that's a tzaddik and pelts, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. And that's the whole point. That's part of the catch-22. Who really, really, really cares about this world? The person who, at least in part, wishes they could leave it. See, a person who really loves the world just for its own sake, he might actually also you know, uh, by some enlightened self-interest figure out that you have to be moral, maybe even you have to be spiritual, maybe even you have to do mitzvahs to make the world a better place. But he's doing it for, for his affinity for the world. This is a person who clearly, if it were up to him, which he admits it's not, he would leave the world. So who's the guy who's really the most altruistic? Who's really looking out for others? The one who, if it were up to him, he would leave this whole thing. When you have both parts of this love, the running and the returning. So the returning part of it is much more forceful than someone who never had the running. The end result is a person who is much more careful about this world and other people in this world. Because he's very clear about why he's even here. He's got only one reason for even being here not because he's interested in any of it for its own sake. I'll tell you one more story, and I'm just telling because I like it, and it illustrates this love, but in a, in a human dimension, but in a, in, a, in a human relationship that is a spiritual, completely spiritual relationship, so it, it'll, it, it might help. It might help. And if it doesn't help, then it was just a story. And the story is about uh, this young man who his father was a religious Jew. He grew up in Israel. And as a teen, he was very, very smart and very uh, um, accomplished. And he, he went his own way. For whatever reasons, he went his own way. And he left yeshiva. And he actually became a, uh, a socialist and he became a, a worker, a tractor driver. 
because he, he was that he was enamored with that type of you know the proletariat lifestyle. So far, far left, socialist, anti-religious, not just atheistic, but anti-theistic, and. Um, at one point, he he sort of got it out of his system, and he realized he wants to come back to yeshiva, but no one would really have him after where he'd been. And somehow, long story short, he ended up in Lud, in the Chabad yeshiva in Lud, and he says he wants to come back to yeshiva. And at first, they were not really sure about him, but he proved himself. And what he did is, he used to when he was out working driving the tractor, he would um, work all day and then party all night and barely sleep. So he had this ability to function on very little sleep. So he did the same thing in yeshiva. <clears throat> he would go to yeshiva by day and then he would play catch up by night. He would have other students tutor him to catch him up with everything that he had missed. And because of that, he was able to, he was able to um, catch up very quickly. And at one point, he wanted to go to 770, he wanted to go to Rebbe. And although normally it was not considered something that a Bachar in, in Israel at that time would go to the Rebbe, it was considered something that was uh, for more mature people. But the, the Rosh Hashiva decided that since this young man had already been out in the world, he already was an experienced person, that it would be okay for him to go to 770. So he went to 770, and he had his first Yechidus with the Rebbe. And he had been told <coughs> that whatever the, the Rebbe's first words to you, sort of um, lay out your entire life in microcosm. So he was very attentive to what the Rebbe's first words to him would be. He wrote a long letter about his story, about where he'd come from, what he'd been through. And, but the focus of the letter was about what he was doing now, about all the, the accomplishments in yeshiva, and that he had now come to, uh, to New York. So the Rebbe read the letter. The Rebbe used to take the letter and twist it over a pencil and scan each line very quickly. And the Rebbe read the letter, and after reading the letter, Rebbe looked to this young man and uttered the first words of the Yechidus, which the young man understood were going to be um, life-changing words. And the Rebbe said, so you know how to drive a tractor. And the young man was devastated because in his mind, the tractor represented everything that he had renounced. He didn't want to hear about that tractor. And he was heartbroken, but he put it out of mind. And he threw himself into his studies, and he became one of the most uh, renowned students in the yeshiva. He was known, again, for being so diligent in his studies. He was the only student it was known that the Rebbe kept extremely late hours. Uh, nobody could keep up with the Rebbe, even in you know, the Rebbe's advanced age. This young man would not leave the study hall until the light in the Rebbe's office would go out. So, um, at any rate, after a few years of 
learning in 770 and uh, basking in the spiritual glow of being in proximity to the Rebbe day in and day out, there came a private audience where the Rebbe told this young man that it's time to leave. It's time to leave Yeshiva. And where should you go? This is the other shoe dropping now. Go back to Israel. No, not to Yeshiva. Go back to Haifa, a secular town. Get a job driving a tractor. It'll be good. And this young man was devastated. This is what he had left. And the Rebbe told him, well, at this point, as I see it, you have to leave now either way. Because if I'm a Rebbe, that means I know where your soul belongs, and you have to listen to me. And if I don't know where your soul belongs, then I'm not a Rebbe, and why would you give up your life to be next to me? So you got to leave either way at this point. So against his will, he tore himself away from everything that was precious to him in life and he, he forced himself to return to a, uh, a world that he had no desire to be in. And the end of the story is that there's no punchline, there's just decades of a life where this young man, whose name was Reuven Dun in Olive Shalom, was able to speak to and bring close to Judaism thousands and thousands of Jews who would never speak to any other rabbi. And they only spoke to him because he was a regular guy driving a tractor, carried his lunch to work, wore a hard hat, knew the world, and so he was their rabbi. And in being so far from where he wanted to be, that's how he ended up being closer than if he had even stayed. Think about the paradox. Ultimately, by being far from where he wanted to be, he was closer to there than if he had stayed. But it only worked because he didn't want to be there. He started on the tractor, right? And if he would have wanted to stay there, it wouldn't have had this effect. The point is that he wanted to leave the tractor. He wanted to stay in 770. And then once he wanted to leave, he got sent back. And once he got sent back against his will, then it could really have an impact. So those who don't even want to be here are the best people to have here. The people who don't even want to be in a body, who don't even want to be in a physical world, are the best people to have bodies and to be in the physical world, and are the ones who are going to be most focused on making this physical world the dwelling place for Hashem that it ought to be. All right, let's officially end, because I went way over time. That's a dirty trick of a story. With a story, you can keep people over time. <laughs>